Our scripture reading this evening is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above it, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we are gathered around your word this evening, we seek your Holy Spirit's presence so that we might receive your word by faith and be shaped and changed by it. For any of this to happen, for any of it to be fruitful or effective in our midst, it must be your work. And so we seek that as a gift of your grace through this, the teaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism this evening is Lord's Day 44. We're going to read all three of these questions and answers responsibly, though our focus this evening will only be on the first question and answer, and next Sunday evening we'll be focusing on 114 and 115. But we'll read responsibly the entire Lord's Day. Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? 
No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we come to our conclusion of our study of the Ten Commandments, which we'll be concluding over the next two Sundays, including this evening. And it is a conclusion, first of all, for a fairly obvious reason. There are Ten Commandments, and this is the tenth one. It's a conclusion for another obvious reason. You would have noticed in our reading of question and answers 114 and 115 that those were a sort of summary of how we should hear and relate to God's law. But it's a conclusion for another reason as well. And that is that our catechism teaches us in question and answer 113 that the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is itself a sort of conclusion not just by being the tenth, but by the substance, the meaning of what it says. It is a conclusion to God's law as a whole. I want to remind you first of the language of the tenth commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So I want you to notice now what our catechism is doing. So the 10th commandment is about not coveting. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But now notice again the language of question and answer 113. What is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. So as usual in our study of the catechism, the catechism is identifying something deeper, something broader, something more complex in what is going on in the catechisms, or excuse me, in the commandment. So to number one on your outline, you shall not covet the Catechism argues that the Tenth Commandment serves as a kind of summary of what our attitude should be toward all of God's law. So to get to this, we have to consider the commandment both more narrowly, that is more precisely what the words of the commandment mean, and then more broadly, which is what our Catechism is discussing. First, letter A, most narrowly, the Tenth Commandment forgives, for, forbids wrongly ordered desire for something that is not yours. Now here we have the uh, delightful question of trying to define coveting. So even just there, the way I tried to define it for you, wrongly ordered desire. Well, what is wrongly ordered desire for something? 
We all know there's a way of wanting something that can be perfectly fine. A way of working towards something. A way of even seeing something that someone else has and saying, I wish I had that. There's all sorts of ways that can be done not sinfully. So what does coveting then mean? Well, inordinate desire. Wrongly ordered desire. Desire that is too much. Desire that is... uh, we could summarize it as being hatefully envious, that would begrudge what your neighbor has, that doesn't like the fact that your neighbor's enjoying it and you wish to consume it for yourself. In other words, coveting is desire that is, well, covetous. There's really no other way to say it. It is sinful desire. It is the desire that is wrong. I, in, in a moment of desperation, I looked it up in the English dictionary, not just depending on the original language, and the English dictionary calls coveting culpable desire. So it's the kind of desire you shouldn't do. How do we define this? Well, you see how this goes. What are we being told as a matter of wisdom? There is a way of wanting something that is disordered, inordinate, that is sinful, that seeks merely to consume. And then we can all imagine the ways that then becomes destructive. And in fact, as we consider what the Catechism says, we can all imagine the ways in which inordinate, wrongly ordered Uh, hatefully envious desire leads to other sins. In fact, just about every one of the Ten Commandments we can quite easily describe as something that would happen as a result of wanting something in a wrong way, a disordered, inordinate way. And so our catechism actually focuses on that idea. It says, yes, most narrowly, the Ten Commandments is about coveting something that someone else has, wanting it in a way that would consume, that would simply be envious. But letter B, more broadly, the Tenth Commandment forbids desiring anything that is contrary to God's law. Desiring anything that is contrary to God's law. The Catechism says this, not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. And here's what's interesting about this, is the catechism is saying that's actually what the 10th commandment is saying. Not the slightest desire. Well, how does the catechism arrive at that? There's a few ways. First, the New Testament explicitly speaks this way. James 4, verses 1 and 2 James says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James sets at the heart of whatever the sin that was going on in the church to whom he was writing, he sets at the center of that, in part, the sin of coveting, desiring something in a sinful manner. And so we have very explicitly the scriptures telling us that that sin, in a particular way, has the ability to lead to other sins. A second way the catechism gets at this is that it is, well, uh, simply common sense to point this out. I already mentioned this earlier. You can, as a very fairly simple thought experiment, work out how each of the main sins of the Ten Commandments would be driven by a coveting, a desire for something in a wrong manner. But most deeply, this goes back to the very original sin, our first sin in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. How is the sin of Adam and Eve here described? It's described as beginning with seeing and desiring. It's described as beginning with coveting something. And what is that something that is desired? Well, the point is not necessarily that the thing itself was bad. It was desired to make one wise. Rather, it was being desired in a way that was inordinate, wrongly ordered, not in the way God had said to desire it. And that that sin then began with that wrongly ordered desire. So what our catechism is telling us is that this idea of sinful desire, of coveting, lies at the heart of all sin. And therefore, it is the 10th commandment that makes most clear what Jesus will emphasize in the New Testament. That the point to God's law is the matter of the heart. That the point to God's law is not simply outward conformity to particular rules, but is about the heart being oriented toward God, toward neighbor in love, and toward the path that is good. It is the Tenth Commandment in particular that drives this point home. And therefore, as the Catechism will go on to say, as will be our focus next Sunday evening, it is the Tenth Commandment in particular that emphasizes that we cannot keep God's law perfectly. And it is the Tenth Commandment in particular that then emphasizes that we need the grace of Christ, that, we need for, that, that what all of God's law is doing is showing us our need for forgiveness in Christ, and that therefore it's the Tenth Commandment in particular that shows us what the life in Christ is like. It ought to be a life of hating what is sinful and truly delighting in what is good. Not simply doing the right thing, but actually being repulsed by that which is wrong and actually being drawn to that which is good. That is going to be our focus under number two and three this evening. But first, before getting there, let us see. Before moving on to that broader idea, let's be careful to appreciate the seriousness of covetousness in particular. What I mean there is covetousness in the more narrow form. That there being something you do not own or possess and desiring it in a way that is wrongly ordered. Desiring it in a way that is sinful. And I, I mean this in the way that we most often think about it in terms of earthly possessions. Someone has more than you and you desire it, you want it. And you are tempted to have life be driven by getting it whether it be by working harder in ways that are outwardly respectable or whether it be by sinful means. The point is that particular idea of desiring physical earthly goods. The scriptures are clear that that is itself a very serious sin. And it is a devious one. It is one that so easily looks respectable on the outside precisely because of what we said earlier, that there are all manner of okay ways there are all manner of good ways to desire and want something. And so it is very easy to, in that way of, of outward observance of God's law, appear to be being perfectly following the commandment, all the while, while within, there is a sinful desire for something that you do not have. In particular, the language of Colossians 3, verse 5. This is from our scripture reading this evening. And what, what I want you to notice here is two things in this verse in particular, but really from our broader reading, the sins next to which Paul places covetousness, and then in this verse in particular, the way he refers to covetousness in particular. Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Think of all the sins he could say, all the sins he does say elsewhere. Here he puts right next to each other sexual immorality, which we today find so easy to condemn and point out how terrible it is and point out how bad it is that we live in a culture that is uh, permissive and acting like that which is bad is good in all sorts of ways. And, And we find it easy often to talk about that in a condemning way. But then right next to that, he places covetousness. Your desire for more, that is beyond what it should be, Your desire for more, for the things of this life that is sinfully, wrongly ordered, which we know we all flirt with, we know is a sin all of us are tempted by, that too is placed right next to sexual immorality. And it is that sin about which he says, which is idolatry. Every time we read this passage, I am struck by that. That he singles out covetousness in particular as being the one he refers to as idolatry. Now, all sin is ultimately idolatry. That's where it begins with the first commandment. And yet, this one in particular, he singles out in that way. We, we can ask all sorts of reasons that might be the case. I think one of the main ones is something we've said already, because it so easily hides. It so easily can be made to look respect, uh, respectable. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time on this broader perspective the catechism gives us, I want to make sure we have that sense of being confronted with making sure that our interest in, our wanting to have the good things of this life is rightly ordered. How do we do that? Well, it's everything we spoke about this morning, that it's oriented toward God's glory and receiving the good gifts of the Creator. All right. Our catechism, however, does not focus on this. Its focus is on what the Tenth Commandment says about uh, our heart for all of God's law uh, in general. So one more time, the answer to question 113, and then we're going to move quickly through number two and three on your outline. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Words that are so easy to say, right? Here's the key, everybody, the Tenth Commandment. Just make sure you always hate sin and just make sure you always love what is right. Say, all right, let's just do that and all will be well. But we know that it is so readily easy that desires well up from within us that are contrary to God's law. And we also know that it is so often the case that there is a way that in meaningful ways we want to follow that is good, but that we find it difficult truly to desire. And so what I want us to do this evening is simply work through this idea. How should we think about this? If we want to be more faithful in hating sin and delighting in righteousness, How do we get there? And I want to give you simply a list of ways that the scriptures speak of this. And my hope is that for each one of us, there's at least one or two of these that will maybe get to us in a fresh way. What that means is for each one of us, a whole bunch of these are going to sound obvious. Maybe all of them will sound obvious. I had an opportunity to have a discussion with someone uh, this past week, a a believer from a Christian tradition very different than our own, and I was um, seeking, trying to describe what's distinct about the Reformed tradition. And as he was getting a picture of what we do, he exclaimed, he said, that must mean you read the creed and the catechism in worship. Do you use the catechism? 
said, yeah, we do. And he explained just how, how amazing, how wonderful that is that there is a church like ours that does that. Say, well, why would that be so wonderful? Well, we know there's all sorts of reasons. One of them is that this is rooting us in a tradition much older and bigger than us, one that comes from before us and that is reminding us of something we need that we perhaps right now have not chosen. It is part of a habit of being formed by these things. For many of us, this is the gazillionth time we have heard a message on Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And especially when a point in terms of the facts of the matter starts to sound kind of obvious, we have the question, wait a minute, why are we doing this? I'm really tired right now. What is going on? Well, so often it is things that we know that we need to be reminded of. It is answers that in one sense we could easily give that we need to be reoriented toward from the outside. And I, with you, am very much thinking of what we are doing here in this way. This is not some uh, new, deep information we've never encountered, but it is a reminder, a refocusing, a recentering of our hearts and lives where it needs to be. And so with that idea in in mind of the joy of having a tradition that constrains us and that here as a kind of habit is reminding us of something, let us ask the question, why should we hate sin? Why? The Catechism told us, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin. Why? Letter A. It is contrary to God's word. The passage there is simply the Ten Commandments. There are times in the Christian life where this is what must, must stop you. Why should you hate that thing? Because God's word says it's bad. And sometimes it is that alone that can break through. Now I'm going to challenge you here to think more deeply about why we should hate sin. But while the reason we should hate sin is more than simply God's word says so, it's nevertheless than that. It always includes that. And we must always be willing to be open open to that kind of confrontation. That's something in some way we cannot even make sense of. There are things in cultural discussions, things that you may personally be tempted by, things where you cannot fully wrap your mind around just why God's word forbids it, but the fact that God's word does must be enough. We hate sin because it is contrary to God's word. Never give that part up, but also never just stay there. God's Word wants you to think more deeply about why you should hate sin. Because God's Word wants to form within us a from within being repulsed by sin. Fleeing from it, hating it. How do we get there? Let her be. We hate sin because it is offensive to God's holiness. Psalm 5 verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Now, how is this different than saying we hate sin because it's contrary to God's word? Well, here, what we are going one step deeper acknowledging is that what God's word says is not arbitrary. God is not just inventing rules, but what he says rather reflects his character. So we must go deeper and think, all right, when God's word forbids something... What is it about God's character, his holiness, who he is that is being violated, being contradicted by that sin? 
And the more you grow in wisdom about that, about God's law, the more you see how there is a beauty and a holiness and a goodness to God that this particular sin is contradicting, that is one of the means by which you can grow in being repulsed by it and truly hating it. It is not just a random rule. It is the goodness of the Creator being offended, being violated. And that, that is His character. Letter C. We hate sin because it leads to destruction. And now for these next four, C, D, E, and F, I really just want to cite the whole book of Proverbs. But I'm giving you some uh, specific examples you can home in on if you wish to. And for a couple of these, I will read them. Um, it leads to destruction. Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verses 11 and 12. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now the key here is that last language. Its, its end is the way to death. Why do we hate sin? God's word forbids it. God's word forbids it because it is contrary to his holiness, his character. And it is God's character, his holiness, that is expressed in the way the world works because he is the creator. And so anything we would seek to do contrary to God's word, contrary to God's holiness, would therefore lead to destruction because it is contrary to the way the world works. Brothers and sisters, it is so important to hear what Proverbs 14 says in this way. Proverbs 14 is not saying, if you go down that path, because it violates a rule that God made up, he's going to zap you with punishment in the end. That is not what it is saying. Proverbs 14 is saying that path leads to destruction because it is contrary to reality and that that contrariness is embedded in the world by God himself. That, that, that reality um, reflects him as the creator. We must learn to hate sin for this reason. That it leads to destruction because it is against the way the world works. Another way of saying this, letter D, it hurts others and ourselves. Far too many conservative evangelical Christians seem to never get to this point. Seem far too content simply affirming that something is wrong because God's word says so. And never get to the point of communicating. And we want to persuade you this is wrong because we care about you. We want to persuade you this is wrong because you are on a path that is destructive. You are on a path that will ultimately hurt you and hurt others. And because of our worship of self, because of our worship of the individual, we are blind to this. And God's word, revealing God's holiness, telling us how the world works, is showing us things, alerting us to things that in the end will do damage. If you have something in your life that you are tempted by and you are scared of the fact that you are tempted by it, you know the feeling? You're, like in, in a very meaningful way, you have no desire for it at all, right? It's completely contrary to what you want. And yet despite that clarity, something wells up from within that still desires it. And that moment is a very fearful feeling. There are all sorts of ways to fight against that. One of them is this, to think more deeply about this. That thing that you are desiring, what is the way in which you have failed to acknowledge, failed to be wise about how it actually hurts people? How it actually hurts yourself. How it actually does damage. And if you have trouble seeing that, 
You need to seek advice from others. Seek reading those who have come before you. Seek counsel from others in the church. If we are to hate sin as we should, we must grow in thinking in this way. Letter E, we hate sin because it doesn't work. Proverbs speaks this way very clearly. The thing you think you're going to get out of it, you're not going to get. The thing you think you are going to get out of it, that it looks like others are getting out of it. They're not getting it either, and you will not. This is how the father speaks to his son in Proverbs 5 about sexual sin. He says, you think it's going to lead to one thing. It's going to be the answer to something you're desiring. It's going to be some sort of fullness or satisfaction that you are desiring. He says, it does not work that way. Sex is made for a particular function, and when it is used differently, it simply will not work. Those are the terms on which the father warns his son. Yes, it's contrary to God's word. Yes, it's offensive to God's holiness. Yes, it is a path that leads to destruction. Yes, it hurts others and ourselves. And it's not even going to work for the thing you think you're going to get out of it. It doesn't work. Letter F. Another way of saying something very similar to that, it doesn't satisfy. Here we are back to coveting in particular. Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6, actually a phrase, we, or a, a, a verses we looked at this morning. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. There is this clear picture repeatedly on this point in Scripture of a, a piling up that will have no end. A piling up of acquiring, of gathering that will never arrive at a goal. There will always be more because it ultimately cannot satisfy. As we seek to grow in hating sin, truly hating sin, these are all ways we ought to be seeking to grow in thinking about it. Not just contrary to God's word, but it doesn't work. Number three, positively. Why delight in righteousness? Again, back to the language of the catechism. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Now, why are there fewer points here? Well, in one sense, this is just saying the same thing over again. All right? If if we want to grow in how we delight in righteousness, well, it's the opposite of what we just said about hating sin. It's to see the positive side of all of those things. We delight in righteousness because it follows God's word. It is in fellowship with his holiness. It leads to life. It uh, does good for others and ourselves. It does work and it does satisfy. So in one sense, number three is simply the opposite of 2A through F. Delight, though, is a very important word. The mirror, so on, on the negative side, If we say there's far too many conservative evangelical Christians who simply say it's contrary to God's word, therefore it's bad, and then try to win an argument about it, and then never go past that. The mirror of that is to say, when we do that, what we are failing to do is to truly delight in righteousness. Truly to have it be what is clearly in our experience good. And that delight is absolutely essential. It's an essential part of our witness It's an essential part of passing this life on to the next generation, and it is essential for our own perseverance. One of the ways you can measure, am I thinking wisely about that sinful path truly not working, truly being destructive, 
One of the ways to get at that answer is to say, is the good path delighting me? Is it, am I truly finding it appealing? Well, in summary, though it's something of a repeat of number two, why delight? Letter A, it is a life in tune with reality. Psalm 119 says, your word is a light upon my path. So you see how quickly the movement is. Yes, it's because it's what your word says, but it's not just because it's what your word says. What does the word do? It shines light on the path. And I can see, ah, I can see the path now. This is good. This is the path that is good. In tune with reality. Letter B, it is life and fellowship with each other as humans in general, as the church in particular. Acts 2 describes this. What does the life of following Jesus do? It brings people together and it does so as the beginning of the new humanity. God's law describes sins that hurt each other and ourselves. The life of righteousness is a life of fellowship with each other. We need this confidence. There is this sort of easy attack on the Christian faith that all it does is want to divide. And so often it is the fault of Christians that we come across that way. But we must be clear that what we are after, what we care about, is that the way of following Jesus is the only way that can truly bring humans together, turn humans back toward each other. First, letter A, it's reality. Letter B, fellowship with each other. And then finally, letter C, it is the life of fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit. What was the negative side of that? 2B, it's offensive to God's holiness. What is the positive? Not simply being not offensive. The positive is that it is a life in fellowship with God. Remember how, how, how deep that point is. God's word describes his holiness, which is his character, which is reflected in the creation. Well, if you are living with the grain of reality in creation, it is a reality that expresses God's character and his holiness, and therefore it is a life in fellowship with him. This is what Jesus says in John 17. Verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That the life God gives us in Christ is the life of enjoying fellowship with Him, the life of glorifying Him, the life we were created for. Not simply following rules, but the reason we exist from the very beginning is to enjoy that fellowship with our Creator. And God's Word is pointing us to that life, and therefore we delight in that righteousness. Letter D. It is... Oh, you have a missing blank. It is the life in tune with that which is eternal. For that life of fellowship with God is forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit that we might truly hate sin more and more and love righteousness more and more. Help us to be wise in how we think about these things, that we might know the goodness and the benefits of that life, and that we might thereby be pleasing to you and glorifying you as we walk along that good path. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.